0: It's an 87th Precinct podcast extra special bonus episode. Hello everyone, it's Paul here with an extra episode for you. This episode features a short interview with someone whose voice will certainly be familiar to many British radio listeners. This is James Nocte. James was the presenter of the Today programme, the BBC's flagship morning news programme between 1994 and 2015. And he's also been the presenter of a show called Book Club, which has just celebrated its 20th anniversary. Now, Book Club is a great show where James chats to authors, but there's also an audience of readers along as well. There's undoubtedly been a few episodes with authors you'd love to hear from, including quite a few crime fiction and thriller favourites, people such as Elmore Leonard, John le Carré, P.D. James, James Elroy, Val McDermott, and so many, many more. In fact, there's nearly 300 episodes of the show, and they're all available as podcasts. So, get stuck in. One of James's favourite authors, as you've probably worked out, is Ed McBain, someone who I don't believe ever made an appearance on an episode of Book Club. Recently, I found out that James was going to be in Liverpool recording an episode of Book Club and also doing some other presenting duties as part of the Liverpool Literary Festival. And so we got in touch with him and he was kind enough to respond enthusiastically to us. So we set up a meeting and had a little chat that I'm going to present to you today. And I can tell you, it is a very weird sensation when you've got to ring someone up and talk to them on the phone, someone whose voice you've known on the radio for 20-odd years. It's like the radio is talking back to you. If I go mad, that's probably the reason. Anyway, this little chat is hopefully the preamble to a more substantial conversation sometime in the future because James is a really passionate fan of the 87th Precinct and also, as you'll hear, some of our other favourite authors There's a couple of things in the chat I want to point out first as well. There is mention made of The Archers at one point. So for listeners outside of the UK, this is the world's longest running soap opera. It's been on BBC Radio since 1950. But we also start talking about James's friend, Ian Rankin. But then we got distracted and started talking about Scotland, which is something I've edited out. So if you think the conversation jumps about a bit at that point, well, you're right. As always, if you enjoy this episode or any of our episodes, then please do share them, like them, review them on iTunes, which is really useful for us, or wherever you listen. Or you can contribute to the running of the show with a one off donation at coffee.com slash Hark 87 podcast. That's K O F I dot com. And um, we really, really appreciate your support and enthusiasm. It all helps. It helps us to reach more people. So this recording took place in the lobby of a nice Liverpool hotel. There's a little bit of ambience there for you, so you'll feel like you're in the room with us. But here we are now, talking to James Nocty. One of my first questions to you was going to be, have you ever met Ed McBain? And one of the first things you said to me was, I've met him, and I think it's quite a badge of honour for a lot of McBain fans to have actually met the man. So can you tell us something about the circumstances around that?
1: I was going to the United States anyway to do another interview, and I asked the independent for whom I was going to write a piece on someone else, whether, because they wanted me to do something else as well, to justify the airfare, whether I could interview Ed McBain in a series that they used to do on the back of their uh, weekend magazine called Heroes and Villains. It won't surprise you to know that he was a hero rather than a villain. (laughs) And the thing was set up. And I went to Norwalk, Connecticut to meet him, about an hour and a half north of New York. And it was one of those occasions when you meet someone for whom you have an enormous affection and admiration from a distance, where it didn't disappoint. Sometimes, too often the opposite is the case. You meet someone and you think, oh dear, you know, and the kind of great figure that you've seen sort of fragments into a hundred pieces. With McBain it didn't. He was cool, elegant, extraordinarily um, laid back, sharp as anything. His intellect just glittering. And he was an absolutely gracious host. We spent some time in his house took me to the room where he wrote which was a very clean spare room it wasn't a cluttered old room full of books and sofas and cats and so on it was a, it was a very clean room and it was clearly somewhere where he could concentrate and you got the idea of someone who took himself out of the world to sit at a desk in front of a laptop and write in an an amazingly disciplined way. And we went out for lunch and had a long lunch at a seafood restaurant on the shore, looking out to the Atlantic, then came back and talked much more and walked through the woods and all the rest of it. And I came away feeling, this indeed is the man that I know from the books. Because this is the guy who understood the excitement of the precinct room in the 87th precinct understood you know the that wonderful psychology between you know Murchison and the rest of them and of course Carella with all the uh, complications of his life and the kids you know Cotton Hawes and all the rest of them and you know Meyer Meyer Hair on Fire and all that stuff and you just got the sense of a guy who understood it and you know what it reminded me of? I've got a, a secret passion which is um, very similar to 87th Precinct fans and it is for the Maigret stories of Simonon. Yes, and the stories and the novels amount to I think in excess of 80 and the amazing thing about Simenon uh, when he was writing these pieces, some of them quite short, some of them much longer, was that he could create an atmosphere in six or seven lines. And you read it, and he says, maigret came out, he put on his winter overcoat, he lit his pipe, he walked to the banks of the Seine, he looked across, there was a man going into a bar. You know, simple sentences. And you think, hang on a minute, how has he done this? <laughs> Within two paragraphs. He's got me there. I, you know, I'm there, I'm at the door of that bar. Or I'm watching that woman in the corner, what's she up to? And McBain has exactly that brilliance. And of course, that's why in screenplay, he was immense, I mean, the birds and so on. He, he could somehow distill the essence of a scene and a character to a few words. And, and you know, we all know those of us who love the <laughs> precinct novels. But he goes off in these great things. The city was like a woman. Yes. She was lying back. <laughs> it was one of those nights. There was a sultry plot. And, uh, and those moments are fabulous because, of course, they contrast with the sheer simplicity and speed and storytelling brilliance of the plot. And the amazing thing about McBain books is that, exactly like Simenon, there are never more than three or four people involved. So when you start the book, you say, well, it must be the husband, it must be the wife, it must be the grandfather, whatever it is. It's not as if it's Agatha Christie with 13 people in a country house. It's not like that at all. And in a way, you almost know how it's going to end up. But that doesn't matter, (laughs) because it's the psychology. And when you get the great, the Moriarty figure of the McBain Books, the, the Deaf Man, you know he's back. <laughs> and it's fantastic. And that's why, you know, I'm hooked. And what I can tell you about him in my one day of acquaintanceship and we correspondence subsequently, he was generous, brilliantly sharp in his mind, and as fascinated. Yeah with what might be happening in the 87th precinct the following week, as he had been 30 years before.
0: Yes, he never seemed to give up on it. I think people thought if there was a bit of a lull, say one started coming out every two years rather than every year, that he might be getting away from it. And of course the question was always, are you going to keep doing it? And he was, and he was always dedicated.
1: And you come back to the... I mean, they're really quite dark books, like *Vespers* and so on. Quite quite late, and, and And and, and there's that sense in which he, I think, felt that, and I talked to him about this: that, that New York, Isola, the city that he knew and loved. There was a sort of wildness about it, and you know, there was the mob, and there were all these things, and there were corrupt police officers and so on. There was a sort of understanding that the streets still worked, you know, that it kind of rumbled along. And then I think there was a dire period where people felt that all this stuff had become so, so dirty, so rough, so destructive of lives, that that poverty was so ever-present, that it became somewhere you didn't want to think about too much. Mm. And then I think that turned... And I think it's true of all of us would... I first set foot in New York in nineteen seventy as a young student going round America in a greyhound bus not before having spent a summer as an assistant salad chef in a kosher hotel in the Catskill Mountains, which is a book <laughs> in it, which is I can tell you is a book in itself, but anyway, so that's when I first saw new York, and there was a period after that I think when it did become um so violent, and so unhinged that it was difficult to maintain your love affair with it. And I think McBain in the books goes through that. But I think then he comes back to this feeling, no, these are the real streets of America. These are the real people. And the cops, what a wonderful thing about the ensemble that he creates in the 87th precinct with all these characters rubbing up against each other and you know Cotton hose trying to pick up anything he can and <laughs> all the rest of them going around and uh, you know at the, at the top the people trying to control these characters and they come in wearily on the you know they're, they're the people who are on duty on Christmas Eve and of course um, the, the two homicide cops who turn up at every scene is that a wonderful you know you know these people and he, I think he I think he created a perfect world I mean it's it's like any author, whether you're comic, tragic, whether you're writing, you know, whatever we call them, thrillers, police procedurals, if you get the gang right and you know them and you care about them and you let them grow, you're home and dry. I yes. mean, it's like Woodhouse with Jeeves and Wooster. It's like Conan Doyle with Sherlock Holmes. Goodness me, it's like The Archers. I mean, you, we know these guys. Yes, indeed. And we know there are worries, and we know that, oh, he's going to go off peace pretty soon. And he's off with this woman somewhere down in the village, or the East Village, you know, having a night. At, and we just know it's going to go wrong. And he knows that we know.
0: Well, let me take you down a Woodhouse cul-de-sac now, because I think you like Woodhouse very much. I certainly do. My colleague Steve-O, who is one of the co-hosts, loves uh, Simenon. But I love Woodhouse very much, and I mention Woodhouse quite a lot because... I think, and it's nice that this coincidence happened and then was backed up by reality, that McBain and Woodhouse have quite a lot in common in, in, their, in their approach to humour and human beings being funny, not least because they knew each other.
1: Well, look, exactly. And one of the great things about Woodhouse is that, though he's writing in this kind of extraordinary um, Remote way in the sense that he's describing a world which, you know, which disappeared 80 years ago. But the clarity of the language. Bertie, I woke up, I had the most appalling hangover. I couldn't face breakfast. I asked Jeeves to drink it himself. I mean, lines like that, you know, you, you don't come from nowhere. Now, if you read Raymond Chandler, great similarity between McBain and Chandler, there's a very interesting connection between Chandler and Woodhouse. Yes, indeed. They had the same Latin teacher at Dulwich, Dulwich College. Col- yeah, yeah. And so they were taught how a sentence flows, how you finish it, how you make it work, you know, how you bring it to an end. And McBain is one of those writers, very much in the Chandler um, idiom, who does exactly the same. There's never a wasted word. Every word counts, and that's why it's so interesting to hear you, Paul, talking about Simonon and Woodhouse, because, you know, that's my territory. I mean, if you like any of these guys, you like all of them, because you recognise what they're doing. And he's got that fantastically um, chiselled-down view. You know, he can get to the essence with a sort of diamond sharp, whatever it is, I don't know, a blade or a... Or a, you know, a Ice drill. <laughs> yeah, exactly, and and of course, it doesn't spare you anything. Uh, but it's never gratuitous. The violence is never gratuitous. I mean, it's always it's there because because that's what happens. And he describes it in a a very bare and straightforward way. And what he never does is then go into some hyperventilated kind of descriptive scene about what's it. It's just that's what it's like. And it's just so awful. You know, a, a young girl lying on some, you know, corner of some street in Iceland, And he just, he just, that's it. This is what it's like. And when and Monaghan come along and say, well, uh, yeah, she's got nice legs or yes. whatever it is. And Carella's there with his, you know, with his drooping eyes. Yeah, and think, book, and, every
0: book description of him.
1: Oh, but you book. see, you can't do it too often. And, and you just know, hang on, this is my guy. This is the guy who's got feeling. This is the guy who understands what lies behind this. Whereas, you know, these two idiots from Homicide are just, you know... But there, there again,
0: another great example of uh, McBain's ability to do comic relief in a fantastic way. Oh, yeah. And I, I think I've sometimes shocked people, and I've talked about Woodhouse and McBain in the same breath. And I wrote an article for a, an online sort of cult magazine yeah. thing where I mentioned about this and someone said how can how can McBain have, have worked with Woodhouse to which I was able to say well he worked yes. at, at the literary agency with, agency with him, shared his birthday they became close friends. Exactly. And you sometimes really detect it I think Monahan and Monroe. the stuff in Fat Ollie's book later on that Hollywood Fat Ollie's on. a
1: great character
0: Yeah, there may be very different uh, physical geographical worlds but they are you know, they oh, such a ab- common.
1: Absolutely. And it's, you see, the world, you know, you know Woodhouse's world is a completely, it's a, it's a lost fantasy world of these, you know, settling in the, in the Jeeves and Wooster books of the, 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 you know, the Drones Club and all the rest of it. We're not talking about the world. We're talking about the people who inhabit it. Mm. And the people, you know, Gussie Finknotle and <laughs> Oofie Prosser and all the rest of them are exactly like... The inhabitants of the 87th Precinct. Or some guy, you know, who owns a diamond shop up in the thing who's, you know, mysteriously something has happened. And you just know this guy's at it. And the minute that Carella knocks on his door, you know on page one the game's up. But you still want to know how and why and when. And that's why I love them. I, you know, My relationship with McBain, as it were, I mean, posthumous relationship with McBain, is that if I'm uh, travelling, which in my job I do quite a lot, and you know, over to the States and so on, I always have two or three books in the go in the bag just in case one doesn't work, you know. But I always have a little McBain stuff up, because, oh, yeah. of course, they're very small. Reliable standard, And they can, and can go in the pocket of a jacket. And they can slip down, and you pick up. Let's hear it for the deaf man, the eight hundred horses, whatever they, you know, all these things. And you you slip this old coronet or penguin or whatever they were in the old days into your pocket, and you just think, I know, I've got a, I've got a standby, because I'll I can be right. I can pick it up, and for six or seven pages, I'm away.
0: Yeah, absolutely. It's 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 really wonderful. So, do you remember then your first? meeting with a McBain book? I think I do.
1: I was a student in America in 1973-74. I'd visited there in 1970 and gone round the country in a Greyhound bus, as we all did in those days, having spent two months as a, an assistant salad chef in a kosher hotel in the Catskill Mountains, which is the stuff of a novel. But I think in 1974, which I spent in upstate New York, but a lot of it in New York and a lot of it in Washington, I found McBain. And I can't remember how or why, but I just did. And like so many people, I just realised this is pure gold. This is why people write. This is storytelling. This is how to take you in six pages into the heart of a... Not so much a mystery, but a psychological drama. It's Chekhov. No, that's. Yeah. And the, you, you mentioned Semenov alongside Woodhouse, and and one of the things people say about Semenov all the time is that it's so spare, it's so quick, it's so short. You think, what can be going on? You know, why is he not doing a Proust and telling us all about these people's backstories? But if you do it in the right way, you don't have to. And it's like revealing a story in the way that Chekhov does, and McBain is exactly in that tradition. And the discipline, I talked to him about this, I mean, the discipline of writing like that, not letting it go, knowing when you do a paragraph of description about the way the city is like a rapacious woman on that night, (laughs) Um, but then going back religiously. And absolutely determinedly to the story, sentence by sentence. Here's who was on duty that night. Here's what they did as they pushed the way through the, the swing door into the pen where they all sat. Here was who was sitting in the cells. Here's what Murchison was banging on about. Here's what the DA wanted. And Monroe and Monaghan were banging on about something, and somebody rang up from the morgue and said, Oh, we've got all this stuff. And you're there, you're back. And you know that these are the people I want to be with, and I want the deaf man to turn up. When the phone rings, I want it to be the deaf man.
0: It is wonderful. It, you know the police procedural aspect of it that is the backbone. Yes, is is something that's very addictive. And to nerds like me, therefore, he, he's built a world within the first say twenty books where you're already going oh he's mentioned that street several times oh, yeah. he's he's shown these reports from the lab several times so and you start to be you start to become a bit obsessive it's an unmappable world that several people have tried to map it's, it's well, it, which is one of the joys of fiction
1: isn't it it's, and he probably pulled back from doing it too completely because you know he didn't want it to be um, too too obvious um, ian Rankin not unknown to people who enjoy police procedural indeed. novels um Ian's a very old and close friend and a neighbour in Edinburgh where I half live and um, he's an enormous McBain fan but but I think it's, it is the idea of being in the company of people not only whom you recognise and feel familiar with but whom you want to be with I want to know what they're doing I want to know what the latest is about you know Meyer Meyer and his complicated psychological relationship with Carella. I want to know about Teddy Carella's wife. I want to know about, you know, how
0: they're all doing. And it's funny because actually, you mentioned if you see someone like Ian Rankin, Rebus is not the sort of person who, in the cold sort of stark look at the, the character, you'd want to spend any time with. And yet, no. you really would like to have a pint with him in in the Oxford.
1: Of course, and and this is the thing. It's not a question of liking people as characters. It's a question of being fascinated by them. Actually, I think I, I hope I would like Corella a lot because, I mean, one of the things that is great about our friend old Steve is that we know he's a good man. Yes, we know we we know that he he cares, and we know that he gets ineffably sad at some of the things he sees and what McBain does with him is to say to the reader this is how you would feel if you ended up at a, you know three in the morning at some run-down Doss house on a corner in Isola, New York and you saw this body and a life snuffed out Carella is telling you how you would feel the wonder of the little gang that is created is, of course, the psychology of the group. That's what we love, because we all know it in our own lives. We know it in families, we know it in workplaces, we know it, you know, among our friends. How how the wires are connected, where they come unbuttoned and, you know, broken, and then how they're put back together again, and how the vulnerabilities and the strengths are always playing with each other, and that's just, it's called storytelling. <laughs> and whether you're reading, you know, garrulous old Walter Scott, which happen to be at the moment, it was wonderful, but in an entirely different way, or whether you're reading these wonderful, boiled down, um, spare stories, like Simonon, like Chandler, that MacBain produces, you know you're in the hands of a teller of tales, And that's why we read fiction. And in the end, you know, somebody can kind of bang on for a long time about some great, uh, you know, uh, scene and uh, uh, historical background of people. But in the end, the story has to drive you on and make you want to turn the page. That's all that it's about. And what he does is he makes you turn the page. And when you... I know you've done a podcast about the screenplay for the birds. But if you just watch the way that that film unfolds and the brilliance of the placing of the words, the pace of the words and the number of words, you realise that's what it's about. And as we said with Simonault, true of McBain and exactly you're right Drew Woodhouse too with a few brush strokes in one paragraph they say you know where you are you know the people you're with you're home let's go on a journey Yeah, it's fabulous
0: It's absolutely it is so um, here's a little question you were in the Radio Times not long ago and it was about 20th anniversary of Book Club on the radio yeah. you know You're a man who spent a lot of time sat next to authors, but obviously you talked about McBain and that, talked about Woodhouse. Now the phrase guilty pleasure crops up a lot, doesn't it? Yes. Why do you think we call reading books like McBain guilty pleasures? It well, it's, we, it's we,
1: never we, me. We, it,
0: it's, <laughs> yeah.
1: I never do it, but people tend to ask you to do it and, and to say, you know, you, you've got a thing you do on the side. You know, why aren't well, you yeah. listening to Wagner? You know, you're reading out the oh, you know, you could talk about Wagner as a guilty pleasure as well, equally. Oh, I don't know. It's, it's nomenclature. Uh, but I agree with you. I think we should call them enthusiasms. We should call them passions. I've got all kinds of things that I do on the side, I mean, in terms of reading or listening or whatever, that that don't fit with, you know, my daily life. Well, but why should I... certainly don't feel guilty about some of these things. I read... I've always loved dark crime fiction. I mean, my one of my huge heroes, who, who writes in a very, very different way from McBain, but he's got... Exactly the same gimlet eye is James Lee Burke, oh, yes. who writes. I mean, many of his books are about a, an ex-cop in New Orleans, a recovering alcoholic, although we know he'll never recover. Dave Robichaud who lives in the low life of the bayou, and they are just brilliant evocations of a particular slice of life. And I find those. I was, <laughs> I was at Heathrow one day. I was flying to America years and years ago. Wandering around the bookshop, and I felt a hand on my shoulder, and it was a guy I hadn't seen for 25 years, 30 years, who taught me American literature at university. And he said, What are you doing? And I said, Oh, lovely to see you, and blah, blah, blah. And we had a hug, and I said, Well, I'm just choosing a book. And he said, What are you reading? And I said, Well, I, I don't know, but I'd always need three or four books on the plane in case something goes wrong. And I had, as we've said earlier, a McBain in the back pocket. He said, Um, are you aware of James Lee Burke? And I said, no. He said, go and buy a couple. I said, why? And he said, because he's a cross between Raymond Chandler and William Faulkner. And he was absolutely right. Now, Lee Burke is a very different writer from McBain, but there is exactly that hypnotic quality that you know you're back in a place that you've discovered. You know you're back with people who... Cleet Purcell is going to walk around the corner as a low life ex cop. And he's like, Oh, I want to be with you again. (laughs) And that's the thing about the eighty. You know, if you pick up an 87th Precinct book, and McBain begins by saying, It's nearly Christmas. The lights were lit on, you know, all the streets of Isola, and the snow was falling, and all this. You just instantly. You can hear a handsome cab coming up to 221B, Baker Street. Or you can see Bertie coming out of the drones. Or you can see May Gray lighting his pipe as he goes into the, the Dauphine uh, restaurant around the corner from the Palais de Judiciaire in Paris to have his lunch. I mean, you're there. <laughs> That's what it is. And that isn't something that can be achieved easily. I mean, you sit there and do it by rote. It doesn't work. You've got to have a writer who understands the psychology of these people and it's not just understanding it. He needs or she needs to care about the psychology of these people. And that's the thing about McBain. You know that he's with these guys in the squad room. That he's you know, he's laughing at some of their antics and he's irritated by some of them. But basically he's with them. He's one of them. And as a reader, you know that. And that is your passport. And that's why he's worth reading.
0: That seems like an excellent place to stop. Thank you very much.
1: Well, Paul, it's been an absolute pleasure. And I can't tell you how happy I am to have discovered this podcast. And I hope many other people do. Well done.
0: Thank you very much. (laughs)